Mindfulness Mode 364. Our own universe is staggeringly, dizzyingly, inconceivably huge, but it may just be um, one of trillions. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness right here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. As always, I appreciate those of you who have subscribed to the episode. That really helps us out. Thank you. I'm going to encourage you today to join us on the free Relax and Breathe Summit with Zen Sensei Pompey Strader Vidal. And before I tell you the details, I want to mention, I've been talking about this summit on the last two episodes, and, well, I didn't realize that the link did not work properly. I fixed it, now it works. Sorry about that error. But on this summit, this free Relax and Breathe Summit, you will learn from over 20 speakers. You'll learn some simple techniques to find calm, clarity, and focus. I'm one of the guest speakers. It was a real honor being on the summit. It includes two 30-minute interviews per day over an 11-day period starting October 11th, just in a few days. Just go to mindfulnessmode.com slash R-A-B 2018, standing for Relax and Breathe. It would be so hugely appreciated by me if you would go to the link and sign up for the free summit. It It would really help me out a lot. I mentioned this last time, I think I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, that when I got back from the summit on Tuesday, life has been pretty intense. I mentioned that I found my very good friend, she's also my ex-wife, I found her in her apartment and she had passed away. And wow, that really was was tough and so my whole week changed I've been planning on posting about the relax and breathe summit all week and needless to say that never happened I really need some supporters to sign up for this summit if you would consider doing this it would help you out it would help me out I would be so grateful and you're going to get the tools like I said to find calm clarity and focus So again, it's the Relax and Breathe Summit. The link is mindfulnessmode.com forward slash R-A-B 2018. Moving forward. Now, today's episode is a brand new interview from last week's conference. I'm really excited about it. Totally, totally enjoyed interviewing this man. And I'm sure you will enjoy listening. So sit back, relax, And enjoy my interview today with quantum physicist, Dr. John Haglin. Hey, Mindful Tribe, this is going to be a wonderful, wonderful interview. I'm here with world-renowned, Harvard-trained quantum physicist, Dr. John Haglin. Dr. John Haglin is a Harvard-trained quantum physicist. He's a lifelong educator, an inventor, and he's a leading researcher on higher states of consciousness. He's the recipient of the prestigious Kilby Award in Physics, 
and he's renowned for developing a highly successful grand unified field theory based on the superstring. He's also the president of the Maharishi University of Management in Iowa. We talk about that on the, on the interview. He was a researcher at the European Organization for Nuclear Research and the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center in the early 80s. He's been published extensively in the area of supersymmetric unified quantum field, and he's appeared many times on news shows such as ABC's Nightline, NBC's Meet the Press, and in so many newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Oh, he's also the international director of the Global Union of Scientists for Peace. It's awesome to have you here, and I'm just so excited to talk with you. So uh, are you in mindfulness mode today, Dr. Hagland? I have been in mindfulness mode for a while. I was shaken from it about four weeks ago for the first time in years, and it was quite a surprise. And I'll describe in a minute what I mean by mindfulness mode, but... Um, I had to go for, had a back injury, I had to go for a major back surgery. And when I came out of that surgery, oh my God, now my my universal self, the inner silence was gone Mm -hmm. and I couldn't really access it. And since the inner awareness, inner silence is our own consciousness and is our own very self, ultimately the seer within, the knower within, to have the knowledge of the knower or the experience of the self gone, it was like a very sharp contrast to how life had been for several years before that. And it took a couple of weeks before it slowly, slowly, that light of inner consciousness turned on. And uh, since fortunately, at least in the last couple of weeks, um, it's back. And I was of the opinion that it would never leave because it had settled in so permanently during waking, dreaming, sleeping. Even anesthesia, under anesthesia, I had it. But after anesthesia coming out, it somehow left me. But I'm happy to say it, 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 I was a little concerned about it, but it has come back. And, wow. uh, and it's, it's a beautiful experience. Well, it must have been quite shocking for that to happen to you. Yes, I remembered a biblical expression that uh, came from Jesus on the cross. I don't want to make that analogy, but it was just kind of like, oh God, why have thou forsaken me? I'm sure, you know, if Jesus really felt, you know, God's absence, you know, leaving him for a while, it must have been quite a shock. It must have been. You can imagine. And it's a very moving thing that uh, he apparently said at that time. But, you know, just kind of, it, it reminded me of those words. It was uh, very surprising um, because you really start to get the impression that the absolute universal being is here to stay. It's, and it's there during dreaming and deep sleep. And even anesthesia, you think, I'm stabilized in this. Yes. Even the death of the physical body can't touch it you don't think it could touch it right because it's so unshakable and it's so beyond time you almost think the body doesn't matter this is something that goes beyond body to spirit but the body turns out to be pretty important at least at my level of consciousness i still need it and the um, central nervous system of course the back surgery is all about taking your spine and pulling it out of the spinal column and then taking a rat tail file and opening up the spinal column. And it's pretty harsh stuff. And I guess I, my central nervous system took quite a beating. So I can forgive it. 
for um, going on strike and uh, depriving me for a couple of weeks at least from that solidity, that solid basis, a solid foundation, which I would call mindfulness. Now, mindfulness, of course, has Buddhist roots, ultimately, and is looking to kind of achieve a Buddhist state of mind. In the Buddhist state of mind, you are anchored in silence. In fact, the main content of life for somebody in Buddha's level of consciousness is that absolute silence, inner silence, inner stability, realization of the immortal, silent nature of the soul, alongside the outer changing reality of thoughts and actions and reactions and so forth. So if if we mean by mindfulness the state of nirvana, mm-hmm. which is absolute blissful silence is stabilized and one recognizes that I am that that is my very consciousness it's the awareness the wakefulness inside which has always been there obviously but it's the wakefulness isn't what we notice in life we notice the computer we notice the person we're talking with we notice the artichoke pizza that we're eating in fact it rather overwhelms us. And what we don't notice is the consciousness inside that is experiencing it all. But the consciousness itself being abstract by nature doesn't jump out at you. It's the pizza that jumps out at you. Yes. So the abstract consciousness inside, which is our very self, our own subjectivity, it gets lost in the sauce. It gets lost in the changing outer you know, circumstances of life. And if the inner silence, inner bliss, inner stability, inner unboundedness, inner invincibility gets lost in the changing details of our life, the ups and downs of life, then life is a little bit like a football getting kicked around by circumstances. And when the inner silence, inner peace, inner unboundedness, inner immortality, inner universality is back with you, along with outer experience, then anything can happen on the outside. Obviously, you'd like good things to happen, and they don't always. Sometimes not so good things happen. But as long as the inside remains anchored in stability, silence, eternity, something beyond time, then the outer can't throw you. It just can't throw you. Well, Dr. Hagelin, I want to take you back to when you were a little boy and you were eight years old. And just imagine a day in your life when you were eight. What was going through your mind? What questions did you have? What were your thoughts on that day? Well, eight o'clock, I would be heading to school, uh, to third grade. Uh, and I was an aware kid. Um, I liked fun I liked, you know, joking. I had a bit of a sense of humor. But I was interested in understanding things. I, I had a, a deep interest. But, of course, my worldview wasn't very sophisticated. I, I had a, a lot of alertness, I think you could say, awareness as a child. And somehow um, I seemed perhaps to some a little bit more alive and awake than others at my age. And my teachers recognized that and put me in some accelerated classes. But apart from that little detail, I think I probably felt like every other kid. Uh, I had a fairly happy 
child. I had a wonderful family, um, relationships, and so that was all fine. Um, but I had some moments. I had some moments of awakening, even at that age. And it's difficult to really articulate what it was, but there was some connection with a bigger reality. And that's probably all I can say about it at that age. Were you brought up in a Christian home? Um, yes, but not heavily Christian. I think my dad, when he finished his master's in engineering, chemical engineering at Pitt in Pittsburgh, um, University of Pittsburgh, I think at that point he had decided, like his professors probably had and some of his classmates, was that, well, gee, I guess God isn't needed because science has figured it out. Right. Um, my mother, I think, was perhaps a little more religious than he was, and we were taken to church throughout our life. We had even Sunday school. I think my mom even taught Sunday school, but they weren't. Um, they weren't very, very into the real deep spiritual side of it. They thought this was good upbringing. It was good moral training, but I don't think they were deeply spiritual. Do you consider yourself a Christian today? Yes, but I have affinity with virtually every religion I know. When you look to the literature, when you look to what I call scripture, you can read scripture from virtually any religion. And what makes it scripture, to me, is that you see really deep truth in it. You can see the truth. You know it's true when you read it. Not all of it. (coughs) Pardon me. You can read scripture, which has all been translated and retranslated into English by now, and I only speak English and a tiny bit of German, a little bit of French, but really English. So everything I read has been translated into English. A lot of it has been translated several times. And a lot of it has been reinterpreted, for example, by the Christian church when the early writings and records were rewritten and recast in a formalized form, which became the Nicene Creed and the various prayers. A lot of that was you know, really reinterpreted for a variety of purposes for the masses, and in part, I would say, to keep the masses loyal to their religion. So you can read scripture today, And you'll see parts of it that are holographically true. But you find little parts of it that you can say, that's a mistranslation, that's a mistranslation. What it really means is this. So for me, it's an active process, reading scripture. It jumps out what is true, but it jumps out what is not. But still, if you read a science fiction book, it may be fascinating, or a mystery you read, it's not scripture. Um, It's entertaining, but it doesn't have that deep ring of truth. Right, I know what you mean. We're here at the Zen Consciousness Conference, the Global Zen Consciousness Conference here in Atlanta, both being speakers here. And it was fascinating hearing your talk a couple of days ago. And you talked about how, you know, there are different layers of creation, like the layers of an onion. And you talked about this. Can you talk to our listeners about this a little bit? It's so fascinating. It is interesting, and I I think most people have had some exposure to science or physics or chemistry, but really very few, even professionals, have really put it together in any kind of clear way. And what we've really learned uh, about the universe in the last century and now in the 21st century is that the universe is structured in layers of creation. 
layers of an onion, you could say. And physics especially, but all the sciences, have been about penetrating the outer layers to explore nature's inner core. And by outer layers, I mean the macroscopic sensory world, the world of objects, brick-and-mortar physics, Newtonian physics. It has its own truth, but deeper than bricks and mortar are the atoms that make up the bricks. And deeper than the atom are the, is the atomic nucleus made of protons and neutrons and the outer electrons that make up the atom. And deeper than the nucleus, even deeper than the protons and the neutrons that make up the nucleus, are the quarks, which are finer particles. And like that, nature physics has gone from layer to layer to layer. And actually, even from, from the quarks, physics has gone another million, million, million times smaller to really begin to explore the true roots of the universe, the true foundations of the universe, the true mechanisms of the Big Bang. And ultimately, by going to the deepest level of creation, you discover, stage by stage, the surface complexity of life, the surface diversity with hundreds of different elementary particles and millions of different molecules and millions of different species and billions of galaxies, all that surface complexity ultimately melts into one. At the foundation of the universe is pure unity. And from that ocean of unity, it's like an ocean of pure being, ocean of pure intelligence, open ocean of infinite creativity, absolute silence, immortality. But percolating out of that deep ocean of silence is the roiling and boiling activity of the universe, first in the form of elementary particles, actually in the form of what are called superstrings. And these superstrings, like little vibrating rubber bands, actually behave like and are the elementary particles, the electrons and the quarks and the Higgs boson. All of those different particles of nature are just shimmering or vibrating infinitesimal strings, like rubber bands. And out of those particles, everything is created. So unity at the basis of the universe. This is Einstein's goal in life, to discover the fundamental unity of humanity, the fundamental unity of everyone and everything in the universe emerging from one universal source of pure intelligence. So physics is at that level. Physics is focused on that. It's the origin of everything we see around us. It's the origin of the universe itself. The layer after layer of the onion of existence, we've been peeling them back, peeling them away, one after another for almost more than a century, and finally have gotten to that core unity of life. It's absolutely fascinating. It really is. And so you believe there was one Big Bang? Well, that's an open question. Yeah. Um, certainly there was at least one Big Bang because it did happen 13.6 billion years ago. Um, it's not clear what preceded it. It's possible that it was preceded by a, an era of absolute unmanifest silence, sort of, you could say, the universe at rest. But it's also, you know, but it raises interesting questions. What changed? What happened to that absolute immortal silence that it decided to percolate a universe? So these are deep questions and we're, we're looking into them all the time. But it seems like 
It's the very nature of this ocean of fathomless silence and infinite intelligence and creativity, the unified field. It's its nature to percolate universes like ginger ale percolates bubbles. Like ginger ale gives forth effervescent bubbles, this ocean of intelligence, it seems it's just that it's its nature that is to, to bring forth universes. Most of them, it seems, are probably duds. They live for a billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. Uh. But uh, some of them, like our universe, undergo an incredible expansion, and it's called, it's called inflation, the expansionary, the inflationary universe. They undergo an incredible expansion. They grow by at least 100 powers of 10 times 10 times 10 times 10 in the first billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second. And once they have that initial momentum, then they ca the universe continues to expand like our universe is continuing to expand today. So it may just be that universes are as abundant as effervescent bubbles in a sea of ginger ale, which if you think about it is rather startling because even our one tiny bubble that we call the universe is huge. It's unfathomably huge, consisting of even potentially an infinity of galaxies. And each galaxy with a three, four, five hundred billion suns, and so many of those with planets. And we assume many of those planets teeming with life, as is our own planet Earth. So our own universe is staggeringly, dizzyingly, inconceivably huge. But it may just be um, one of trillions. And this reminds me of a quote from what's called the Bhagavad Gita, uh -huh. which is, I think you could say, that kind of highest, you could say, scripture in the Hindu faith. And I don't think of it that way. I think of it as the distilled essence of the Vedic wisdom from which Hinduism and Buddhism and, and other traditions of knowledge all sprang. But in that line, in that Bhagavad Gita, there's a line that says, and this is Lord Krishna speaking, Lord Krishna just represents the absolute universal cosmic intelligence. And Krishna says, because I am unbounded, my maya, my creation, is also unbounded. And I'd say he wasn't kidding, because the creation as we know it today, we probably don't know the whole thing, right. is huge. Yeah. Well, you talked about the fourth state of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that. All right. Well, what what are the first three? Well, there's waking, yes. and we're both happily awake right now. There is deep sleep. We're quite familiar with that, although most people don't experience sleep. We know we do it. We do it. And then there's dreaming. Mm -hmm. And each of those are different states of consciousness because they each have a different experience associated with them. They each have a different brain physiology, and they each have a different physiology, meaning different levels of rest. So... We know what those states are. Fourth state of consciousness, the meditative state. It has been considered a fourth state of consciousness for eons. The Upanishads, the literature of yoga talks about the meditative state, the pure consciousness state, to be a fourth state of consciousness. And starting in 1970, Dr. Robert Keith Wallace at UCLA and Harvard um, was the first to actually do research on what happens during the meditative state. Now, depending upon the techniques of meditation, and I'm most familiar with transcendental meditation, 
the mind settles very deeply, but then it kind of comes out, and then you take another dive and it settles deeply again. And by meditative state, in this discussion, I'm talking about the deepest level, the most settled state of mind, when what we call thinking, feeling, basically dissolves into pure abstraction, purely consciousness, pure consciousness. And uh, in some traditions that's called samadhi. It's got a name in every tradition. But in that state of deepest silence, when thoughts, the mind has come to rest, the body also take, gains a very deep state of rest, much deeper than sleep, much deeper than sleep, deep sleep. And that's actually very healthy. To have a dose of really deep rest gives the body a chance to redirect its energies towards repair and fix things. So that's why some people say TM is much more effective than just sort of regular meditation where you just let the thoughts go by and you don't have that effort to create the void. That's a very interesting question and be very happy to talk about different methods. Um, the more effortless the practice, the more likely the mind is to settle down. Right. Counterexample, concentration, concentration, focus on this. Well, focus is work. <laughs> it's mental right. exertion. Yeah. And that word focus is actually a very appropriate word for what we're talking about. Not what I'm talking about, but what people are often talking about. Because focus is like a lens. It takes your diffuse consciousness and it sharply focuses it on an object, whether it's a candle or a concept world piece or of the divine, but it's focusing the attention. Actually, what I mean by the meditative state or samadhi is 100% the opposite of focus. It is you know, allowing the attention to withdraw, to relax and withdraw from that sharp focus. And as it withdraws from that narrow, sharp focus, it's like the blinders of awareness expand and the consciousness becomes more diffuse, more silent, more diffuse and more diffuse and suddenly, boom, infinite, wow. unbounded, abstract. Now that'll happen on its own, if you're lucky. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often to very many people, but it can happen on its own. But if you're working, if you're striving, it's the opposite of the deep rest, and it, it's going to interfere with the process. Transcendental meditation adds an element. You could say it's a, 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 a thousands-year-old trick. In transcendental meditation, a sound is used, depending upon the person, or, or mantra is chosen. And mantras in any tradition are sounds with a soothing, life-supporting, health-promoting effect. But then there's something called a transcending mantra, which also has a soothing, life-supporting, health-promoting effect, but it has another quality. A transcending mantra is a mantra that is more alluring, more charming, more blissful to experience at deeper and deeper levels of thought, at quieter and quieter levels of thinking, more subtle states of consciousness, more subtle states of thought. And that's important because if the mind catches a whiff of the fact that, hey, this sound, this mantra is really, really pleasing to experience at these deeper and deeper and deeper levels, the mind will just go there. Right. And it'll take you there. It's a vehicle to deliver you to the transcendent. And it's just like 
if there was a really catchy tune that you're familiar with and you like playing next door to where we're speaking right now, your mind is just gone. Yes. It'll go there by itself in that same natural, effortless, and easy way. Uh, a meditation technique like TM, or specifically TM in, in today's time, will just draw the mind powerfully within. So people who might not necessarily be predisposed to settling down and experiencing quiet and profound levels of thought because they're too active, they're type A, they're stressed, it'll pull you there anyway. And so um, it's a very effective practice. It's, it's something that is uh, very systematically taught the same all over the world. Mindfulness right now has different sort of, um, you would say, different paths that are sort of forks in the road for mindfulness. It's a little bit scattered. Um, some seem to do quite well at this, and others may be better for this. But TM is very specific. It's been taught for thousands of years. It's taught the same way all over the world. It's taught the same way it was taught thousands of years ago with a candle and a short ceremony of gratitude. And it looks, frankly, rather strange in the world today. Who does that? But there's been an effort to make sure that TM is taught in the same way that it's always been taught, because at least we know that works. And how long do you meditate every day and how many times a day? Uh, I dedicate 20 minutes twice a day. Now, I've been doing it for years, and over, t over these many years, I've grown into a habit of actually extending that time to closer to an hour. But that's not for everybody. I mean, people have things to do. Yeah. And in 20 minutes of TM, you can really get a profound dose of rest and refreshment and clarity. And it's interesting. When we sleep at night, we do get rest. Wake up in the morning, you know, then, okay, you get going. You're a little bit groggy, but you get going. The deep rest of TM is not a state of kind of blackout or unconsciousness. It's a state of wide awake, silent consciousness, and it sharpens the mind. You come out of that, you're instantly refreshed. And it's even more than being refreshed. When you go to sleep at night, it's like putting your computer to sleep, closing the lid, your Macintosh goes to sleep, you wake it up in the morning, and it's back the way it was, and nothing has really changed. And if you don't really reboot your computer every week or maybe more, it starts to get cluttered up and it starts to get buggy. Transcending is like rebooting your central nervous system. It is a complete, clean, and fresh start. And it comes with a clarity of mind and speech and action that you just don't get from sleep. It's a terrific tool. It's just a shame that... Um, in the last recent generations, techniques, and there are other techniques, but techniques to transcend effectively have not been so available. And I don't think education is really developing the full potential of our young people, which as an educator, I feel it must and it can. And there's some very interesting trends that are starting to change that. Well, I've certainly seen here at the conference scientific evidence that TM is almost twice as effective as regular mindfulness style of meditation. It is. It's very effective. Uh, mindfulness it has effects. Um, it, for example, mindfulness, if you have a soldier that is traumatized with post-traumatic stress, in time, uh, mindfulness has a statistically significant effect at starting to relax and unwind that acute state of chronic stress. 
Um, so, by the way, does psychotherapy. It's not a comfortable process. Your therapist sits with you and they make you relive the horrible experience that your friend got blown up right next to you and you lost an arm in the process. You relive it enough over a period of months, you start to develop some scar tissue around those traumatic areas of your memory, sort of, so to speak. And um, you can start to kind of live with that experience more normally. But in the same studies funded by the Pentagon and that were done on post-traumatic stress soldiers in the Veterans Administration hospitals, you know, it was only you know, within a week or two or three that uh, TM uh, brought, basically removed the symptoms of post-traumatic stress and really restored the balanced functioning of the mind-brain personality. So it was, it, was quite, it was at least twice as effective, even as psychotherapy. And psychotherapy is still considered to be, was considered to be the gold standard treatment for post-traumatic stress. So this is a breakthrough, and that's why suddenly the Pentagon and the Veterans Administration's hospitals are really starting to incorporate TM as part of their treatment for post-traumatic stress, but also for addictions, opioid and alcohol. Once you've got that kind of stress, you tend to self-medicate. You drink too much, you turn to drugs. Getting off those drugs, as we know, opium especially, opioids, is very tough. And so these our government institutions are finding a lot of success with TM and people who have that kind of addiction. Wow, that's fantastic. Dr. Heglin, I want to kind of shift directions a little bit, and I want to ask you a question about bullying. And if you were ever bullied in your life, or if you have ever, you know, maybe been responsible for bullying someone in your professional life or something like that, a story that you could share with us where mindfulness would have made a difference as to the outcome. It's very good. I, I, I don't think I've been myself participating in bullying activity. I tend to you know, always stand up for the underdog, whoever might be getting bullied, to within the limits of my own strength. And of course, as a younger person, I was as vulnerable as anybody, and I didn't have as much strength as I would have wanted to stand up more forcefully for people who were being misused. But as a physicist who is willing to talk about consciousness and is dedicated to researching consciousness, that makes me a little bit of an outlier in the physics community because physical scientists don't talk about consciousness. Uh, it's like, um, I don't know, real men don't do ballet. Right. Um, because for physicists, we study the physical world. We're meat and potatoes people. We, we, you know, if we can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it, it's real. This consciousness stuff, what is that, the tooth fairy? Is yeah. it Santa Claus? It's a crazy point of view because physicists have consciousness. Right. They should recognize that they are conscious. Right. And since consciousness doesn't f exist within their physical equations, they tend to dismiss it as something that's not real. Actually, if they take their study of physics more deeply, they will discover that consciousness does fit into their physical equations. That is the very source of physics, and every discipline for that matter. But be that as it may, having been a bit of an outlier, willing to talk about consciousness, there are plenty of physicists who've dismissed me. In fact, when I went from Stanford University faculty to Maharishi University faculty in 1983, you know, people wrote me off. They thought that was kind of obviously going to be the end of me. 
It wasn't. I mean, that was really the start of my fruitful research in physics, and I had developed a doctoral program. I got a National Science Foundation grant to do research in unified field theory. So my physics was fine, but um, still, even then, even that, even since my physics was demonstrably better than it had been, I still, I think, I, I probably um, was considered to be odd because I was into consciousness, into meditation, and so forth. So definitely you can tell when you're at a, a social event or a conference involving other physicists, you know, physicists can take an attitude towards you. And they certainly did to me. I certainly felt that at times patronizing and so forth. So um, if you took that stuff seriously, and it was certainly been tempting for me at times, you know, to react to it, you know, to, to push back in a way that might not be productive, you know, get into an argument or toss an insult back to the other person. But um, by about that time in my life, you know, I had been meditating for quite some years and I didn't find myself overthrown by it. I found the whole thing actually a little humorous. I was able to just, you know, smile quietly as all this was going on because it was going on. I know it was going on. I wasn't always invited to give the keynote speeches at conferences, even if I did the keynote research behind it. You know, just a little bit of a second-class treatment. It was as though I were an African-American in the Deep South 40 years ago. You just don't get the same treatment. I mean, you know, it just wasn't the nature of the culture at the time. And I felt a little bit like that, I think. So anyway, um, yes, being grounded in yourself is really so key. It's really important to be in the driver's seat in the sense that you're not reactive. Because if you're reactive, if you're defensive, you're, it's hard to know what you're going to say, but it's probably not going to serve you. Right. So being grounded <laughs> in yourself, your big self, your inner silence, unshakably so, and that's something that's developed over years and years, um, that's a great antidote to overreacting and from ever getting thrown off of your feet. As one of the world's great physicists, I want to know what your advice would be to my son, who is 17. He wants to be a theoretical physicist. He's absolutely loves science and math, has wanted to be a scientist since he was eight years old, and he's looking at, at universities right now. What would your advice be to this young man? I'd love to say something directly to your son, and it would be this. I was 17 years old. I was at a boarding school, a, a boys' boarding school called Taft in Connecticut. I was also in a body cast. It was the beginning of my senior year. I was living in the infirmary. I was in plaster head to toe from a motorcycle accident oh. over the summertime. Mm -hmm. And I was very, very stressed. I was really, it was a very, very bad accident at the time. And um, I had a fever that wouldn't break and I just, I, looking back at the time, I would just, I had asphalt all inside me, and I broke all the bones below my waist. So I was kind of a mess. My orthopedic surgeon came in one day, and he said, you know what, uh, you know, this is 1972. He said, there's this, um, this meditation thing. You might want to try it. Apparently, it may help you sleep. It may help you heal. And uh, I said, I took a note of it. But a few days later, a trained teacher of Transcendental Meditation walked into my infirmary room 
turned out he had come to Taft at the invitation of the headmaster to give a lecture about transcendental meditation, teach a course on transcendental meditation to the students and faculty and staff. And he was staying in the infirmary as a place to put him up. And just by this coincidence, he asked if I wanted to learn to meditate TM. I said, yes. Now, I didn't know anything about it, but I wanted it. It was clear to me, basically, just intuitively, that this was something I wanted to check out deeply. Yes. So I learned, and it was about three days or so that my fever normalized, and I started feeling, you know, much stronger and, frankly, more rambunctious. But so the thing is, once you get over an illness... You know, you could have some disease and you say, God, if you just get me through this, I promise to be a good person for the rest of my life. Well, after a week or that week or two, you forget about it completely. Right. You're not necessarily being the best person. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Similarly, when I got over this health issues, feeling better, I probably, you know, wasn't so motivated. But I, what did motivate me, and this is relevant to your son, I was trying to teach myself quantum mechanics uh, at 17. And my physics professor, physics teacher at Taft gave me an old, thick, dusty book and said, look, I, I don't teach quantum mechanics. I'm not a quantum mechanic, but perhaps you can learn this on your own. Well, it was a formidably thick and really abstract. It was, oh, so abstractly mathematical. I really didn't know what it was talking about, which was a surprise for me because normal physics I could do in my sleep. Sure. So what the difference was, once I started to meditate, when I opened the book after meditation, this dry, abstract stuff that had put me to sleep before was completely different. It was in technicolor. It was like opening up a box of C's candies and reaching for this incredible chocolate caramel. It was so vivid. It's just, I said, this is amazing how much clearer my brain is. Uh, how the cobwebs have been taken out of my brain from this very simple, simple technique to transcend. And since that time, it has been my secret sauce in terms of being a physicist and doing research. It's the most powerful tool for a theoretical physicist is the analytic and intuitive capabilities of the mind. But frankly, whether you're a physicist or a, a chef, your mind is incredibly important to you and if there is a technique that will sharpen your mind like that and increase iq and creativity which tm does you got to do it so you really attribute your success in physics to tm yes for two two reasons actually one is it certainly clarified my mind it gave me a lucidity of thinking and lucidity of speech and lucidity of action purposefulness of action that was so different from before but the other thing is it opened my understanding, perception, awareness of deeper levels of reality. It took my mind deeply within, and that's where physics itself was going, deeper within, not the surface bricks and mortar physics anymore, but quantum mechanics, quantum field theory, the physics of the elementary particles, the physics of the unified field. And my mind was already going there. And so it just basically gave me an experiential foundation to understand what would otherwise have been very abstract concepts of physics, like unity, the fundamental unity of life. That's abstract, but no, with the meditation experience, it's vividly concrete. So it was a huge help to me. Um, 
and it's really guided my life ever since. Well, I'm very grateful for your advice to my son. And since he edits my podcast, he's going to hear this directly. Oh, fantastic. So that's, that's terrific. Um, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. All right. Just 30 second answers yep. are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? For me, it's the great scholar and sage Maharishi Mahashyogi. Uh, he was amazing. And I had the good fortune after I'd been meditating for some time to live in his home in uh, in Holland where he oh. had a small university, research university, and I had a great opportunity to learn from him. He has a degree in physics and he took a similar path to mine, you could say. And then he went and studied with the most profound and enlightened uh, sage in India. Uh, his teacher was extraordinarily famous, and he himself basically absorbed uh, the wisdom of his teacher, and I got a taste of that wisdom from Maharishi directly. But what Maharishi teaches, everyone has access to. He really didn't want to depend on him at all. Didn't want to be a personality or personal guru to anybody. He really wanted to give the tools that allowed everybody to be their own, in a sense, that they could gain direct experience of ultimate reality and wouldn't have to rely on anyone's secondhand opinion about it. So how has mindfulness, or TM in this case, helped you with your emotions, or how has it changed how you perceive your emotions? Emotions are generally more joyful. Uh, a lot of the negative emotions of anxiety and depression are stress-driven. So if you have a powerful stress buster, and meditation generally is meant to be a stress buster. Remember, mindfulness-based stress reduction right. is meant to be a stress buster. The very, very deep rest that comes with TM is an even more powerful stress buster. That completely changes the complexion of one's emotions. So... Also, because meditation takes your awareness deep to very fine, fine levels of feeling, one's emotions tend to get more, uh, more deeply appreciated. They become richer. You start to feel more like a fine artist who has a very deep kind of feeling for things. I didn't have that kind of refinement growing up, so that's uh, a nice side effect of meditation. How has mindfulness affected your breathing, or how is breathing a part of this? That's very interesting, too. Again, different techniques are different. But in the TM technique, you don't really worry about your breath. You just follow the mind as it flows into this state of deep silence and inner unboundedness. And your breath goes with it in the sense that as the mind gets deeply rested and settled, the breath gets deeply rested and settled. And in the meditative state, the deepest points of meditation, I'd swear I wasn't breathing. Now, if you really, you know, pay attention to it, you'll notice that there is a puff of breath coming up the nose and a, just a puff of breath coming out. But it's like, it doesn't even really get past your head. And you're living on that. The requirement for oxygen goes way down when the body's deeply rested and the cells inside the body aren't burning as much oxygen, aren't burning as much fuel. So a very deep state of rest will soften the breath. And my breath has, is soft even in activity as a consequence of that regular practice. 
And can you recommend a book that's somehow related to all of this or related to mindfulness, to TM possibly? Yeah, there have been many really good books. And one just came out a few months ago by a very good friend of mine who was my best man at my wedding 10 years ago, Bob Roth. And the book is called Strength in Stillness. And I think it's something that every mindfulness or transcendental meditator practitioner should read. It's, It's really good. And there's one more I'll mention as well. And um, it is by a psychiatrist, Norman Rosenthal, and I think it's called Transcendence. But if you go to Amazon and you put in Norman Rosenthal, you'll find it. In fact, he has two books. He has a second book on higher states as well. I think it's called Enlightenment, but I'm not sure. They're both very good. They're both good books. So I'd start with the first one, though. Um, meaning uh, his original book, which I think is called Transcendence. And perhaps even before that, because it's more accessible to normal people, is Bob Roth's book on um, strength in stillness. It's still a bestseller. Oh, great. Well, thanks for that. And Mindful Tribe, I'll put all of this into our show notes so you can access this at mindfulnessmode.com. One more question. Is there an app that you would recommend that can help with your mindfulness in some way? Uh, There are no uh, apps currently that would be that much of a help with uh, what I call transcending, which again is a a class of meditation, TM is the sort of foremost example, that are directly involved at taking the mind without delay to this deep, deep state of transcendence. There is an app that is coming that is related to that, but it doesn't really help you with the practice. It helps you connect with resources. It helps you connect with other people who are meditating. It helps you find a local teacher and things like that. But the actual technique of transcendental meditation by of necessity is a process of taking the awareness deeply within deeply within. So any external device is going to involve putting your attention on something without. Right. Right. Well, that makes perfect sense. Well, it has been fantastic to talk with you. Is there any way our listeners can reach out with you, to you or connect to you online? Um, uh, right now, I don't have much of a social media presence. I simply, as a university president and as president of the Global Union of Scientists for Peace, Um, I've just been too busy to develop my social media. You can reach out to me at uh, president at mum dot edu. That's president at mum, stands for Maharishi University of Management dot edu. And I'll get that email and I'll try and get back to you. And that's in which state? In Iowa. That's what I thought, Iowa. And I bet you many, most of your listeners have flown over it at some point. Oh, I'm right? sure. <laughs> yeah, because... And maybe never stopped there. But it's an amazing university, Marshall University of Management. It's actually kindergarten through PhD. It is um, surprisingly the largest, and I would say best, uh, computer science professionals program in the United States. You might think, well, that's not very meditative, but it is. It takes you know great creativity uh, to really exceed it in any discipline, any profession. But it's really a university for people who are interested in exploring deep truth. 
and developing the brain for direct experience of the deepest truth, for developing what are called higher states of consciousness, enlightenment. You can call it establishing mindfulness on a permanent basis by awakening the inner light of consciousness, awakening inner silence, and living it 24-7 no matter what happens on the outside. Unless, like me, you have a major back surgery that takes that experience temporarily away from you from, by great surprise. That shouldn't happen, by the way. If right. I were more advanced in my practice, that, um, that's, that very invasive surgery should not have dampened that inner light of consciousness. But I must admit it did. It just means I have more work to do. And the students at your university begin the day with meditation and end yes. the day with meditation. That's Isn't exactly that right? right. Students, faculty, staff, the people mowing the lawn, the whole, frankly, community of several thousand people, they meditate very regularly there because the benefits are very palpable. And the, one of the reasons I like doing this as a group in a university setting mm -hmm. is that there is a spillover effect of meditation into the environment, calm happiness they're infectious and just like panic can spread across a city like in south central los angeles there was a big panic and big riot years ago calm can spread across a city and due to 48 studies published in the world's foremost journal scientific journals of conflict resolution all verify that individual meditation is powerful calming influence on self and family and friends but group meditation with significant numbers can really chill out an entire city, demonstrably lower crime, even turn off war, terrorism, open warfare in war-torn areas like the Middle East whenever it has been done. And these studies have been done. They've been big. They've been you know, well-funded. They've been very carefully researched. And if we could just gather enough people who want to be part of the solution, want to be a lighthouse of peace in themselves, we can create a peaceful world. And I think immersing our children in meditation is one of the best ways to start. And I know that you mentioned the David Lynch Foundation for Meditation and World Peace. Yes. Can you mention a little bit about that yes. and what you know about it? Yes, it's a very good point. As you know, I'm the president of what's called a consciousness-based education college, Marshall University of Management. But based on that example and the success of the educational process there, thousands of schools, thousands of schools involving millions of children have incorporated TM into the school day. Um, the David Lynch Foundation is an organization founded by David Lynch, the filmmaker, who's a really enthusiastic meditator. But that organization has been fantastic in generating the funds required to provide this type of free transcendental meditation instruction to millions of students. So it started in San Francisco, not surprisingly, because it's a rather progressive step to take. But the results have been so good that there's such a demand for it that we cannot keep up with demand. And I was mentioning 21 countries in Latin America have rolled this out now nationally in their school systems. And the results as a consequence of that have been amazing. So yes, uh, our children are precious. Get them while they're young and not too stressed. Give them a powerful tool to release stress and expand consciousness, and we'll have a better world. Dr. Hagelin, thank you so much for being on Mindfulness Mode. Truly my pleasure, Bruce. It's oh. really my pleasure, Bruce. Okay. All the best to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. 
Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. Remember to sign up for the Relax and Breathe Summit at mindfulnessmode.com slash RAB2018. Thanks, everybody. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.